The following dicta production is a case on appeal from the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan, the Court of Appeal for Ontario, and the Court of Appeal of Alberta. The following are the reasons delivered by Justice Rowe, dissenting. The National Concern Doctrine is a residual power of last resort. I have come to this view through a close reading of the Queen and Crown Zellerbach Canada Limited, 1988, SCC, and the cases that preceded it. Faithful adherence to the doctrine leads inexorably to the conclusion that the national concern branch of the peace, order, and good government, power cannot be the basis for the constitutionality of the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act, SC, 2018. My focus is mainly doctrinal, to attain the objectives sought by the federal structure, and for courts to be accountable to the public in how they exercise their power as umpires in federalism disputes. Doctrinal coherence, clarity and predictability regarding the division of powers are essential. First, I discuss the principle of federalism and the division of powers, the starting point for a complete understanding of the national concern doctrine. Second, I discuss the residual and circumscribed nature of the POG power, rooted in Section 91 of the Constitution Act 1867. While some commentators refer to the existence of three branches of POG, GAP, national concern, and emergency, in my view, the case law does not support a distinction between GAP and national concern, nor is such a distinction useful. Rather, what commentators refer to as gap and national concern is better understood as one manifestation of the cumulatively exhaustive nature of the division of powers, and the residual nature of POG. Third, I apply this understanding to the national concern test set out in Crown Zellerbach, and interpret the concepts of singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility, provincial inability and scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction accordingly. The National Concern Doctrine applies only to matters that are distinct from those falling under provincial jurisdiction and that cannot be distributed between the existing powers of both orders of government. In addition, their recognition under POG cannot upset the federal balance. Fourth, I compare this approach to the approach urged on us by the Attorney General of Canada. Finally, I address an entirely distinct matter, the methodology for reviewing regulations for compliance with the division of powers and how it may apply to regulations made under the Act. In the result, for these reasons and those of Justice Brown, which I adopt, the legislation is ultra vires in whole. Part 1. Federalism and the Division of Powers This case requires a careful consideration of one of the fundamental underlying principles animating the Canadian Constitution, federalism. The primary textual expression of the principle of federalism can be found in the division of powers affected mainly by sections 91 and 92 of the Constitution Act 1867. An essential characteristic of the distribution of powers is its exhaustiveness, which precludes legislative voids. Exhaustiveness reconciles parliamentary sovereignty and federalism. It ensures that there is no subject matter which cannot be legislated upon and that Canada, as a whole, is fully sovereign. The principle of federalism pursues some well-known objectives, to reconcile unity with diversity, promote democratic participation by reserving meaningful powers to the local or regional level and to foster cooperation among governments and legislatures for the common good. The distribution of powers, in turn, was not random, rather, it was designed to achieve these objectives. It accommodates diversity between provinces, by allocating considerable powers to provincial legislatures to allow them pursue their own interests and their desire for unity, by granting powers to Parliament when they share a common interest. The federal structure protects the separate identities of the provinces from being subsumed under a unitary state. The federal structure was an essential condition for confederation. Many provinces would not have supported the project of confederation without the adoption of a federal form. In other words, without federalism, Canada could not have formed or endured. 
Consequently, courts interpreting the division of powers must be careful not to dim or to whittle down the provisions of the Constitution Act 1867 and its underlying values, or impose a new and different contract upon the federating bodies through an exercise of interpretation. The Canadian Federation guarantees the autonomy of both orders of government within their spheres of jurisdiction. Their relationship is one of coordination between equal partners, not subordination. The guarantee of provincial autonomy to facilitate the pursuit of collective goals has particular salience for a province like Quebec, where the majority of the population is French-speaking and which possesses a distinct culture. Autonomy, rather than subordination, entails that provinces have the right to legislate for themselves in respect of local conditions which may vary by as great a distance as separates the Atlantic from the Pacific, as Professor Pigeon, as he then was, explained. Quote, the true concept of autonomy is thus like the true concept of freedom. It implies limitations, but it also implies free movement within the area bounded by the limitations. One no longer enjoys freedom when free to move in one direction only. It should therefore be realized that autonomy means the right of being different, of acting differently. This is what freedom means for the individual. It is also what it must mean for provincial legislatures and governments. There is no longer any real autonomy for them to the extent that they are actually compelled, economically or otherwise, to act according to a specified pattern. Just as freedom means for the individual the right of choosing his own objective so long as it is not illegal, autonomy means for a province the privilege of defining its own policies. End of quote. Thus, federalism recognizes that there may be different and equally legitimate majorities in different provinces and territories and at the federal level. Embracing differences between the provinces also has instrumental value. Allocating powers to the provinces may produce policies tailored to local realities, since provinces are closest to the citizens affected and thus most responsive to their needs, to local distinctiveness, and to population diversity. In addition, provinces can serve as social laboratories when they enact innovative legislative policies that can be tested at the local level. The judiciary is charged with delimiting the sovereignties of both orders of government, guided by the lodestar of the principle of federalism. More specifically, in the Queen and Como, 2018, SCC, this court explained that the tension between the center and the regions is regulated by the concept of jurisdictional balance. Division of powers disputes must be resolved in a way that reconciles unity and diversity. This cannot be achieved by merely determining which order of government is thought to be best placed to legislate regarding the matter in question. Functional effectiveness is often erroneously equated with centralization and uniformity and eclipses the value of regional diversity, as Professor Beats, as he then was, explained. Quote, as a result, Quebec jurists can only be suspicious of the argument that, for example, legislative authority must be commensurate with the problem to be resolved. They find, first of all, that this is not a legal argument, but a political and functional reason to amend the Constitution if necessary. Next, they find, from a political standpoint, that it is a permanent argument, one that is favorable to a concentration of powers in the federal government, since the problems to be resolved will obviously not stop increasing in intensity, in complexity, and in their ramifications. End of quote. Rather than the functional approach, Professor Beats argued for further development and clarification of concepts, and for analytical jurisprudence. This is consistent with the view that at every step of the analysis, courts must assess constitutional compliance, not policy desirability. In recent years, this court has adopted a flexible, cooperative conception of the division of powers. This approach accommodates overlap between valid exercises of federal and provincial authority and encourages intergovernmental cooperation. Cooperative federalism, however, cannot override the division of powers or make ultra-vires legislation intra-vires. Moreover, while it encourages cooperation between orders of government, it does not impose it. 
Finally, precise and stable definitions of the powers of the two orders of government are an essential precondition to cooperative federalism. Without them, the respective bargaining positions of the two levels of government will be too uncertain for federal-provincial agreements to be reached. Respect for the principle of federalism is essential in deciding these appeals. This court is called to determine, primarily, if the act can be upheld as an exercise of Parliament's authority to enact laws under the National Concern Doctrine. This involves consideration of the purposes sought by the choice of a federal structure, the logic of the distribution of powers, and a careful examination of the jurisdictional balance between both orders of government. Part 2. POG is residual and circumscribed. The Attorney General of Canada seeks to uphold the Act as a valid exercise of Parliament's jurisdiction under the National Concern Doctrine of its peace, order, and good government power. The exhaustive nature of the division of powers, discussed above, means that matters that do not come within the enumerated classes must fit somewhere. This is dealt with by two residual clauses, one federal and one provincial. The federal residual clause, which I refer to as the peace, order, and good government or pod power, comes from the opening words of Section 91 of the Constitution Act 1867. Quote, Section 91. It shall be lawful for the Queen, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate and House of Commons, to make laws for the peace, order, and good government of Canada, in relation to all matters not coming within the classes of subjects by this Act assigned exclusively to the legislatures of the provinces, and for greater certainty, but not so as to restrict the generality of the foregoing terms of this section, it is hereby declared that, notwithstanding anything in this Act, the exclusive legislative authority of the Parliament of Canada extends to all matters coming within the classes of subjects next hereinafter enumerated, that is to say, end of quote. The Provincial Residual Clause is Section 92 Sub 16 of the Constitution Act 1867. Quote, Section 92. In each province the legislature may exclusively make laws in relation to matters coming within the classes of subjects next hereinafter enumerated, that is to say, subsection 16, generally all matters of a merely local or private nature in the province. End of quote. Collectively, the federal and provincial residual clauses ensure that the division of powers is exhaustive. The role of POG is thus limited to instances where the matter does not fall under any enumerated heads and cannot be distributed among existing heads of powers. Notably, by the operation of Section 92 sub 16, POG does not apply to matters of a merely local or private nature. This residual and circumscribed understanding of the POG power informs my understanding of the National Concern Test. I justify this understanding of POG first, through a close reading of the text of Sections 91 and 92, and second, through a close reading of the case law. In the analysis that follows, there are two points which could be seen as unorthodox. The first relates to residual authority in the division of powers. It is commonly accepted that POG is a grant of residual authority to Parliament. What is less widely accepted is that Section 92 sub 16 is a residual grant of authority to provincial legislatures. My view is that both provisions confer residual authority, as I will explain below. The second point is that, properly read, the jurisprudence supports a view of POG as having two branches, national concern and emergency. The third gap branch constitutes part of national concern, which is Parliament's general residual power. I would underline that my analysis of the Crown-Zellerbach framework would be the same even if there is only one residual authority, POG, and even if there are three branches to POG, national concern, gap and emergency. Thus, my conclusions are in no way dependent on these two points, nor do these two points affect my critique of the augmentation and extension of national concern urged on this court by the Attorney General of Canada. Subpart A a close reading of sections 91 and 92. 
while the statement of the heads of power set out in 1867 could not contemplate the changes in technology and society that would follow, that statement was exhaustive. The heads of power must be given meaning in a changing world, a living tree capable of growth and development but grounded in natural and fixed limits. This is accomplished through a flexible, progressive interpretation of the division of powers, but one that begins with and is constrained by the natural limits of the text. Sub-sub-part 1. Pog is residual to section 92. The wording of section 91 provides textual support for the view that the Pog power is residual to section 92. Section 91 confers the power to legislate for peace, order and good government in relation to all matters not coming within the classes of subjects by this act assigned exclusively to the legislatures of the provinces. As Professor Lysak points out, it does not confer a power to legislate in relation to peace, order and good government. Rather, the power is to legislate in relation to matters that do not fall under any provincial, enumerated head of power. Quote, in other words, Parliament is not authorized to legislate in relation to a matter caught by the provincial categories simply because it might in some sense be thought to qualify as contributing toward the peace, order and good government of Canada. End of quote. Further, as Professor Gibson explains, every conferral of provincial legislative jurisdiction is qualified by words such as in the province, including section 92 sub 16. The result is that the POG power is limited to only those matters that are not of a provincial nature. In other words, it confers Parliament jurisdiction over matters with a national dimension. Thus, focusing on peace, order, and good government is unproductive because it provides little assistance in drawing the line between provincial and federal areas of competence. In addition, it tends to draw attention away from the central question pointed to by the introductory clause, namely, whether the matter to which an enactment relates is one not coming within the classes of subjects assigned exclusively to provincial legislatures. A general power to legislate in relation to peace, order and good government would also be incompatible with the intention to create a robust sphere of provincial jurisdiction to protect the autonomy of the provinces. Section 92 sub 13, in particular, grants the province's jurisdiction over property and civil rights in the province, which was understood as descriptive of the full range of civil law, as opposed to criminal law. In Citizens Insurance Company of Canada and Parsons, 1881, JCPC, Sir Montague Smith similarly observed that the words of section 92 sub 13 were sufficiently large to embrace, in their fair and ordinary meaning, rights arising from contract. He held that there is no reason for holding that these words are not used in their largest sense in section 92 sub 13. As a result, the general pod power does not confer authority to Parliament to enact laws of a local or private nature, or related to property and civil rights under the guise of peace, order, and good government. As Lord Watson observed in Attorney General for Ontario and Attorney General for the Dominion, 1896, JCPC, quote, the Dominion Parliament has no authority to encroach upon any class of subjects which is exclusively assigned to provincial legislatures by Section 92. These enactments appear to their lordships to indicate that the exercise of legislative power by the Parliament of Canada, in regard to all matters not enumerated in Section 91, ought to be strictly confined to such matters as are unquestionably of Canadian interest and importance, and ought not to trench upon provincial legislation with respect to any of the classes of subjects enumerated in Section 92. To attach any other construction to the general power which, in supplement of its enumerated powers, is conferred upon the Parliament of Canada by Section 91, would, in their Lordship's opinion, not only be contrary to the intendment of the Act, but would practically destroy the autonomy of the provinces. If it were once conceded that the Parliament of Canada has authority to make laws applicable to the whole Dominion, in relation to matters which in each province are substantially of local or private interest, upon the assumption that these matters also concern the peace, order, and good government of the Dominion, 
there is hardly a subject enumerated in section 92 upon which it might not legislate, to the exclusion of the provincial legislatures. End of quote. Sub sub part 2. POG should be understood as residual to the enumerated heads of section 91. While case law has consistently held that POG is residual to the provincial enumerated heads, this court's approach to whether it is residual to the federal enumerated heads is not so clear. Some early cases treat the POG power as residual to both the provincial and federal enumerated heads of power. For example, in Toronto Electric Commissioners and Snyder, 1925, JCPC, Viscount Haldane said that courts should first ask whether the subject matter falls within Section 92. If it does, the court asks whether it also falls under Section 91. Only if the subject falls within neither of the sets of enumerated heads would POG be considered. However, some commentators have claimed that POG is not residual to the enumerated federal heads of power because the enumerated federal heads are only illustrative of peace, order, and good government. Moreover, in some cases this court has held that a matter may fall within the POG power or another enumerated federal head of power. While there is nothing wrong with making alternative findings, these cases could be read as indicating that it is possible for a matter to fall both within the POG power and within a federal enumerated head of power at the same time. In my view, this approach is wrong. I agree with Professor Hogg that the POG power is residual to the enumerated provincial and federal heads of power, and that matters which come within enumerated federal or provincial heads of power should be located in those enumerated heads, and the office of the POG power is to accommodate the matters which do not come within any of the enumerated federal or provincial heads. Contrary to Professor Laskin's view, as he then was, I do not understand a number of the enumerated heads of power assigned to Parliament, such as its power over copyrights, to be merely examples of a broad power to legislate for peace, order, and good government. Rather, many had to be specifically enumerated to avoid falling under the large scope of provincial jurisdiction over property and civil rights. There is no reason to hold that a matter falls under POG when it comes within an enumerated head of jurisdiction. As Professor Hogg explains, the normal process of constitutional interpretation, like the interpretation of any statute or contract, is to rely first on a more specific provision before resorting to a more general one. Resort to the general over the specific improperly treats the specific as redundant. Moreover, as Professor Abel argues, the more specific will usually be more defined and less contentious, and courts should not waste time arguing about the outer limits of the more general and diffuse when it is not necessary. In doing so, they would avoid the difficult question of whether a matter is of a merely local or private nature or if it has reached a national dimension so as to fall under POG. When we are classifying the subject matter of an enactment, we are therefore first trying to classify it among the exclusive heads of power assigned to the federal and provincial legislatures. If the matter cannot fit within any enumerated head, only then may resort be had to the federal residual clause. This methodology helps ensure that the federal residual power cannot be used as a tool to upset the balance of federalism by stripping away provincial powers. Sub sub part 3. The parallel structure of the provincial and federal residual clauses supports a narrow understanding of POG. The federal residual clause has typically been seen as the sole residual power, such that all matters not coming within those assigned to the federal and provincial legislatures come within federal power. However, there is a strong case for viewing the opening words of section 91 and section 92 sub 16 as setting out a parallel structure of complementary federal and provincial residua. There is much to be said for the theory that the two sections complement and modify each other, with the federal residuum dealing with matters of a general character and the provincial residuum encompassing matters of a merely local or private nature. Indeed, the two sections have been said to strike a careful balance with matters potentially regulated at the federal level already within the enumerated provincial powers or ultimately covered within this last clause on matters of local concern. 
Professors Hogg and Wright similarly say, quote, There is a plausible argument that the Constitution Act 1867 includes not one, but two complementary residuary powers. This argument, in turn, strengthens the view that the Act, as drafted, was intended to form the foundation for a federal system that is less centralized than many English-Canadian commentators have supposed. End of quote. As the Attorney General of Quebec argues in this case, the scope of Section 92 sub 16 must be interpreted as a counterbalance to the introductory paragraph of Section 91 to reflect the constitutional principle that both Parliament and provincial legislatures must be seen as equals. Accordingly, when determining if a matter falls under POG, it is relevant to consider if it is of a merely local and private nature such that it would fall under Section 92 sub 16. There is also support for this understanding of the relationship between the POG power and Section 92 sub 16 in the case law. In Attorney General for Ontario v. Attorney General for the Dominion, 1896, JCPC, Here and After Local Prohibition, Lord Watson explains. In Section 92, Number 16 appears to their lordships to have the same office which the general enactment with respect to matters concerning the peace, order, and good government of Canada, so far as supplementary of the enumerated subjects, fulfills in Section 91. It assigns to the provincial legislature all matters in a provincial sense local or private which have been omitted from the preceding enumeration, and, although its terms are wide enough to cover, they were obviously not meant to include provincial legislation in relation to the classes of subjects already enumerated. In reference to the Farm Products Marketing Act, 1957, SCC, this court also addressed the residual nature of Section 92 sub 16, and explained that Head 16 contains what may be called the residuary power of the province and it is within that residue that the autonomy of the province in local matters, so far as it might be affected by trade regulation, is to be preserved. More recently in reference Reassisted Human Reproduction Act, 2010, SCC, Chief Justice McLaughlin stated that Section 92 sub 16 along with Section 92 sub 13 are often seen as sources of residual jurisdiction, and Labelle and Deschamps stated that Section 92 sub 16 can also be regarded as a partial residual jurisdiction. The parallel structure of the residual clauses contributes to the balance of powers within the Confederation and ensures that, as society changes, more and more matters are not enveloped exclusively within federal competence. Accordingly, the residual scope of the pod power is narrowed by section 92 sub 16, which applies to matters that are of a local and private nature even if they do not come within any other enumerated head of power. For clarity, this understanding of the relationship between section 92 sub 16 and pod differs from the understanding of the Court of Appeal of Alberta majority. In my view, pod is residual to all enumerated provincial heads of power, including section 92 sub 16. Matters that formerly fell under any enumerated provincial head of power can come to extend beyond provincial competence and, where the Crown-Zellerbach test is met, come within POG. Subpart B. A close reading of the case law. A review of POG case law reveals that courts have long struggled to define its contours in a way that preserves the division of powers. The result has been doctrinal confusion and categories that lack clarity. Many commentators speak of three separate POG branches, emergency, national concern and gap. Professor Hogg explains that matters falling under the GAP branch are not just new in the sense that they do not come within any enumerated head of power, but rather depend upon a lacuna or gap in the text of the Constitution, where the Constitution recognizes certain topics as being classes of subjects for distribution of power purposes, but fails to deal completely with each topic. Though the terminology between commentators differs, the schema is similar. In my view, the pod jurisprudence should be read as signaling the existence of just two branches, a general residual power and the emergency power. 
what some commentators have named gap in national concern are simply manifestations of the exhaustive nature of the division of powers and the residual nature of the pot power, matters that do not come within any enumerated head of power or cannot be distributed among multiple heads of power must fit somewhere, and they belong under POG when they pass the Crown-Zellerbach test. A close reading of Crown-Zellerbach reveals that the test set out in that case applies to both national concern and gap cases, and this affinity between gap and national concern informs my understanding of that test. Sub-sub-part 1. The early development of the POG power. From the beginning, courts have treated the POG power as residual, only relevant where a matter does not come within the enumerated classes of subjects. The early cases reveal no distinction between gap and national concern, but rather a distinction between a general residual power and the emergency power. In either instance, the courts emphasize that POG is a category of last resort, and the importance of keeping the doctrine circumscribed and narrow, so as to properly preserve the sphere of provincial jurisdiction. The earliest cases of Parsons and Russell and the Queen, 1882, JCPC, treated Section 91 and POG essentially as one. If a matter did not come within a Section 92 head of power, it fell somewhere within Section 91. In Russell, Sir Montague Smith upheld the Canada Temperance Act, 1878, SC, 1878, noting that temperance was a subject of general concern to the Dominion, upon which uniformity of legislation is desirable, and the Parliament alone can so deal with it. In local prohibition, Lord Watson upheld a provincial local option temperance scheme quite similar to the federal one in Russell, under section 92 sub 13 or 16. While noting that there may be matters not coming within the enumerated heads of section 91 or 92 that fell under federal power, Lord Watson cautioned that such non-enumerated matters ought to be strictly confined to such matters as are unquestionably of Canadian interest and importance and should not trench upon provincial subjects at the risk of destroying provincial autonomy. He then made the frequently cited statement, quote, Their lordships do not doubt that some matters, in their origin local and provincial, might attain such dimensions as to affect the body politic of the Dominion, and to justify the Canadian Parliament in passing laws for their regulation or abolition in the interest of the Dominion. But great caution must be observed in distinguishing between that which is local and provincial, and therefore within the jurisdiction of the provincial legislatures, and that which has ceased to be merely local or provincial, and has become matter of national concern, in such sense as to bring it within the jurisdiction of the Parliament of Canada. End of quote. Following local prohibition, the Privy Council, per Viscount Haldane, ignored this passage and the national concern idea for many years. Instead, POG was seen as encompassing only emergencies. These cases represent the first scaling back of national concern. At the same time, they illustrate that the courts have long been concerned with ensuring provincial legislatures did not lose their powers. In 1931, national concern seemed to resurface in, in re-regulation and control of aeronautics in Canada. 1932, JCPC, which reiterated that matters can attain such dimensions as to affect the body politic of the Dominion. Ultimately, the Privy Council held that aeronautics fell within federal jurisdiction, essentially under Section 132 of the British North America Act, 1867, the Treaty Power, in in re-regulation and control of radio communication in Canada, 1932, JCPC, Viscount Dunedin held that Parliament had jurisdiction to regulate radio communication based on both the interprovincial undertaking power and POG. He noted that the British North America Act, 1867, was silent on the ability of Canada, as opposed to the British Empire in Section 132, to enter treaties and thus did not authorize treaty-implementing legislation. POG therefore filled what appeared to be a gap. Next, a series of New Deal cases in 1937 reverted to the idea that POG applied only to emergencies. 
Among these was Attorney General for Canada and Attorney General for Ontario, 1937, JCPC, here and after labor conventions, in which Lord Atkin held that neither the aeronautics reference nor the radio reference stood for the proposition that legislation to perform a treaty was an exclusively federal power. For division of powers purposes, there was no such thing as treaty legislation as such. Rather, provinces could legislate over aspects of treaties falling under Section 92 and Parliament over aspects falling under Section 91. National concern re-emerged in Attorney General for Ontario and Canada Temperance Federation, 1946, JCPC. Viscount Simon held that Russell was not based on the emergency branch and that POG was not confined to emergencies and could encompass matters of concern of the Dominion as a whole. As the foregoing discussion demonstrates, early POG cases suffered from a series of twists and turns, with various national concern statements infusing them at various points. As I read the above cases, the common theme is this, courts rely on POD to give effect to the exhaustive nature of the division of powers, but courts have always been cautious to guard provincial jurisdiction and ensure POD does not become a vehicle for federal overreach. With this backdrop, I turn to Crown Zellerbach in its survey of the modern case law on POG. Sub Sub Part 2 The Modern Development of the POG Power in the National Concern Test from Crown Zellerbach In Crown Zellerbach, Justice Ledane set out the Modern National Concern Test. A close reading of Crown Zellerbach and the cases on which Justice Ledane relies reveals that his test applies both to what commentators refer to as national concern cases and gap cases. Both are manifestations of the exhaustive nature of the division of powers and the residual nature of the POG power. Both types of cases must have the requisite singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility and must have a scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction that is reconcilable with the fundamental distribution of legislative power under the Constitution. In Crown Zellerbach, Justice Ledane surveys a number of POG cases. The first one of note for our purposes is Canada Temperance Federation, where Viscount Simon set out the following formulation of the test. Quote, in their lordship's opinion, the true test must be found in the real subject matter of the legislation. If it is such that it goes beyond local or provincial concern or interests and must from its inherent nature be the concern of the dominion as a whole, as, for example, in the aeronautics case and the radio case, then it will fall within the competence of the Dominion Parliament as a matter affecting the peace, order and good government of Canada, though it may in another aspect touch on matters specially reserved to the provincial legislatures. End of quote. Here, we have the aeronautics reference and the radio reference being cited as examples of national concern cases. Applying Canada Temperance Federation, this court held that aeronautics fell under POG apart from any question of a treaty power, as in aeronautics reference, and that legislation establishing the National Capital Commission could be upheld under POG. Justice Ledane then reviews Re-Anti-Inflation Act, 1976, SCC, a case which provided important statements on both the emergency branch and the national concern branch. In Anti-Inflation, Chief Justice Laskin, writing for a majority on this point, upheld the Federal Anti-Inflation Act under the emergency branch of POG. Although he wrote in dissent on the emergency power, Justice Beetz's reasons on national concern attracted a majority. Justice Beetz noted that national concern leads to exclusive, permanent federal competence and expressed serious concerns about a fundamental shift in the division of powers arising from recognizing inflation as a matter of national concern, as various provincial matters could be transferred to Parliament. In his view, if inflation were recognized as a matter of national concern, a fundamental feature of the Constitution, its federal nature, the distribution of powers between Parliament and the provincial legislatures, would disappear not gradually but rapidly. In anti-inflation, Justice Beetz appears to have grouped what some commentators would call gap and national concern cases together, and understood them to be motivated by the same underlying logic. Quote, 
in my view, the incorporation of companies for objects other than provincial, the regulation and control of aeronautics and of radio, the development, conservation and improvement of the national capital region are clear instances of distinct subject matters which do not fall within any of the enumerated heads of section 92 and which, by nature, are of national concern. End of quote. This statement groups together the incorporation of federal companies and radio with conservation and improvement of the national capital region and aeronautics. Justice Beats understood each of these subject matters as not falling within any enumerated head and as being of national concern. Justice Beats goes on to explain that such matters must not be an aggregate but have a degree of unity that makes them indivisible, an identity which makes them distinct from provincial matters and a sufficient consistence to retain the bounds of form. The scale upon which these new matters enables Parliament to touch on provincial matters has also to be taken into consideration before they are recognized as federal matters. These constraints apply both to national concern cases and to the cases some commentators understand to be gap cases. They allow courts to ascertain whether the matter is of a truly national dimension, rather than local, and whether it has sufficient unity to be recognized as a matter under POG rather than subdivided among existing heads of jurisdiction. I note that Justice Beats expressed that he was much indebted to an article by Professor Ledain, as he then was, for his doctrinal statement on POG. Later in Crown Zellerbach, Justice Ledain refers to Labatt Breweries of Canada Limited and Attorney General of Canada, 1980, SCC, where Justice Esty illustrated the range of federal jurisdiction under POG, characterizing the POG doctrine as falling into three categories. Quote, a. The cases basing the federal competence on the existence of a national emergency. B. The cases in which federal competence arose because the subject matter did not exist at the time of confederation and clearly cannot be put into the class of matters of a merely local or private nature, of which aeronautics and radio were cited as examples, and c. the cases in which the subject matter goes beyond local or provincial concern or interest, and must, from its inherent nature, be the concern of the Dominion as a whole, citing Canada Temperance Federation. End of quote. Here, Justice Esty has characterized aeronautics and radio as examples of matters which did not exist at the time of confederation and cannot be put into the class of matters of merely local, or private nature. Category B above, unlike Viscount Simon and Canada Temperance Federation, who saw these cases as examples of national concern in the traditional sense. Category C above. This is indicative of a relationship or overlap between both categories, which Justice Ledain later reconciles. Justice Ledain then cites Justice Dixon's dissenting reasons in the Queen and Wetmore, 1983, SCC, who read anti-inflation and Labatt as established in two branches, an emergency branch and a general residual branch, the second of which could be subdivided into categories B and C from Labatt. Quote, In the Reference Re-Anti-Inflation Act, 1976, SCC, Justice Beats, whose judgment on this point commanded majority support, reviewed the extensive jurisprudence on the subject and concluded that the peace, order and good government power should be confined to justifying, one, temporary legislation dealing with a national emergency and, two, legislation dealing with distinct subject matters which do not fall within any of the enumerated heads of section 92 and which, by nature, are of national concern. In the Labatt case, Justice Esty divided this second heading into, one, areas in which the federal competence arises because the subject matter did not exist at the time of confederation and cannot be classified as of a merely local and private nature and, two, Areas where the subject matter goes beyond local or provincial concern or interests and must from its inherent nature be the concern of the Dominion as a whole. This last category is the one enunciated by Viscount Simon in Attorney General for Ontario and Canada Temperance Federation, 1946, JCPC. 
the one preceding it formed the basis of the majority decision in the Queen and Hauser, 1979, SCC, that the Narcotic Control Act, RSC, 1970, came under the peace, order and good government power is dealing with a genuinely new problem which did not exist at the time of Confederation. End of quote. Justice Ledain did not draw a distinction between GAP and national concern cases. Rather, he appeared to understand the two non-emergency POG categories set out in Labat as falling under a general, residual branch of the POG power, to which the following national concern test applies. Quote, From this survey of the opinion expressed in this court concerning the national concern doctrine of the federal peace, order and good government power I draw the following conclusions as to what now appears to be firmly established. 1. The national concern doctrine is separate and distinct from the national emergency doctrine of the peace, order and good government power, which is chiefly distinguishable by the fact that it provides a constitutional basis for what is necessarily legislation of a temporary nature. 2. The national concern doctrine applies to both new matters which did not exist at confederation and to matters which, although originally matters of a local or private nature in a province, have since, in the absence of national emergency, become matters of national concern. 3. For a matter to qualify as a matter of national concern in either sense it must have a singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility that clearly distinguishes it from matters of provincial concern and a scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction that is reconcilable with the fundamental distribution of legislative power under the Constitution. 4. In determining whether a matter has attained the required degree of singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility that clearly distinguishes it from matters of provincial concern it is relevant to consider what would be the effect on extra-provincial interests, of a provincial failure to deal effectively with the control or regulation of the interprovincial aspects of the matter. End of quote. On my reading, Justice Ledain subsumed all non-emergency POG cases into one test, which is separate and distinct from the national emergency doctrine but applies to both new matters which did not exist at Confederation, and to matters which, although originally matters of a local or private nature in a province, have since, in the absence of national emergency, become matters of national concern. The requirements of singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility and an assessment of the scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction apply for a matter to qualify as a matter of national concern in either sense. Therefore, while some commentary speaks of emergency, gap and national concern as three separate branches, in my view it is more accurate having regard to the case law to say there are two branches, emergency and a general residual power, to which the national concern test applies. This is consistent with Justice Beetz's approach in anti-inflation and the view Justice Ledain expressed when he wrote on POG as a professor. Indeed, he seemed to view all non-emergency POG cases as subsumed under the general power, which was decidedly residual. Quote, the issue with respect to the general power, where reliance cannot be placed on the notion of emergency, is to determine what are to be considered to be single, indivisible matters of national interest and concern lying outside the specific heads of jurisdiction in sections 91 and 92. End of quote. Justice Ledain's view as a professor and Justice Beetz's reasons in anti-inflation should inform the interpretation of the test set out in Crown-Zellerbach, as subsuming gap and national concern. This reading of Crown-Zellerbach is also shared by some commentators. Dwight Newman says that POG applies only in the context of what would otherwise be a gap in the structure and the case law does not support the three-branch description of POG. If national concern and gap are understood as separate, it is easy to mistakenly understand gap as the sole residual power and to fail to appreciate the residual nature of national concern. Rather, what some commentators call gap and national concern have the same underlying logic. They are both manifestations of the exhaustive nature of the division of powers and the residual nature of POG. This close affinity between gap and national concern is crucial to a proper understanding of the Crown-Zellerbach test. 
All matters of national concern must fill a kind of gap in the sense that they do not fit under the enumerated heads, and, conversely, all matters that do not fit under the enumerated heads must still pass the national concern test to be within federal jurisdiction. Historical newness is irrelevant in ascertaining the existence of a constitutional gap. Justice Ledain is clear in Crown Zellerbach that the test he sets out applies to historically new matters and matters that have come to extend beyond provincial competence and become matters of national concern. When I say that the matter must fill a kind of gap, I simply mean that the matter does not fall under any enumerated head of power and cannot be divided between multiple enumerated powers. As I explained below, singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility, provincial inability, and scale of impact should be understood so as to give effect to the residual nature of the pot power, and filter out any matter that could fall under an enumerated head of power, including matters that are of a merely local or private nature falling under section 92 sub 16, and matters that could be distributed among multiple heads. I pause here to note that the emergency branch, too, can and should be understood as residual to the enumerated heads of power. Viscount Haldane, the architect of the emergency doctrine, employed expressions which suggest a temporary transcending of the confines of the provincial heads of power. Cases invoking the emergency branch indicate that in an emergency, a new aspect of government business arises that extends beyond provincial competency. For clarity, the fact that the emergency branch should also be understood as residual does not mean matters classified as emergencies need to pass the national concern test set out in Crown Zellerbach. Indeed, Justice Ledain specifically clarified that the National Concern Doctrine is separate and distinct from the National Emergency Doctrine. Sub-sub-part 3. Going forward. The arc of the pod jurisprudence has been an effort to navigate such that the division of powers is collectively exhaustive, in a way that respects provincial jurisdiction. The National Concern Doctrine, when properly applied, plays an essential role in achieving this. Matters that do not come within one of the enumerated heads of jurisdiction and that cannot be separated and shared between the enumerated heads of jurisdiction of both orders of government do not fit comfortably within the division of powers. In order to maintain exhaustiveness, such matters fall under the general residual power of Parliament by virtue of their distinctiveness from matters under provincial jurisdiction and their indivisibility between various heads of jurisdiction. But when the doctrine is improperly applied, POG ceases to be residual in nature. When that is so, it can become an instrument to enhance federal and correspondingly decrease provincial authority. The POG case law reviewed above is at times amorphous and difficult to organize, but one common denominator runs throughout. Ports must be careful in recognizing matters of national concern and heed the consistent warnings from the case law, because the national concern branch has great potential to upset the division of powers. Once a matter is qualified as of national concern, Parliament has exclusive jurisdiction over the matter, including its interprovincial aspects. Thus, as the Attorney General of Quebec argued, an expansive interpretation of the doctrine can threaten the fundamental structure of federalism and unduly restrain provincial legislatures' lawmaking authority. It would allow Parliament to acquire exclusive jurisdiction over matters that fall squarely within provincial jurisdiction and flatten regional differences, including Quebec's ability to retain exclusive control over all powers deemed essential to the survival and flourishing of its distinct cultural identity. Ports should never start a division of powers analysis by looking to the federal residual power. This approach helps guard against an unwarranted and artificial expansion of federal jurisdiction. While the National Concern Doctrine allows courts to recognize Parliament's jurisdiction over matters that used to fall under provincial jurisdiction, there is no corresponding transfer of matters that are no longer of national interest to the provinces. Rather, recognizing a matter of national concern has the effect of adding by judicial process new matters or new classes of matters to the federal list of powers, which would belong to Parliament permanently. 
Therefore, to preserve the federal balance, courts should treat POG as a power of last resort. Some more recent case law from this court recognizes this. For example, in Friends of the Oldman River Society and Canada, Minister of Transport, 1992, SCC, this court declined to uphold federal legislation under the POG power and stated that the solution to this case can more readily be found by looking first at the Catalogue of Powers in the Constitution Act 1867. My view of the National Concern Test gives effect to this truly residual understanding of POG. The scope of the National Concern Doctrine must be limited to matters that cannot fall under other heads of jurisdiction and that cannot be distributed among multiple heads, thus filling a constitutional gap. Accordingly, the doctrine only applies to matters which are truly of national concern, as opposed to matters of a merely local or private nature that fall under Section 92 sub 16. Part 3. The National Concern Doctrine. Subpart A. Singleness, Distinctiveness, Indivisibility. In Crown Zellerbach, Justice Ledain explained that for a matter to qualify as a matter of national concern it must have a singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility that clearly distinguishes it from matters of provincial concern. A close reading of Justice Ledain's reasons in Crown Zellerbach and of Justice Beetz's influential reasons in anti-inflation reveal that singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility should be understood purposively as a way to identify matters that are beyond the powers of the provinces and cannot be divided between both orders of government, which must fall under the general federal residual power in order to fill a constitutional gap. Justice Beetz's reasons in anti-inflation are an essential starting point to understand how matters can qualify as of national concern. Justice Beetz explained that matters of national concern have only been recognized in cases where a new matter was not an aggregate but had a degree of unity that made it indivisible, an identity which made it distinct from provincial matters and a sufficient consistence to retain the bounds of form. The matter at issue in anti-inflation, the containment and reduction of inflation, did not meet such requirements. Quote, it is an aggregate of several subjects some of which form a substantial part of provincial jurisdiction. It is totally lacking in specificity. It is so pervasive that it knows no bounds. Its recognition as a federal head of power would render most provincial powers nugatory. End of quote. In Crown Zellerbach, Justice Ledain noted that the majority of the court in anti-inflation held that the national concern doctrine applied, in the absence of national emergency, to single, indivisible matters which did not fall within any of the specified heads of provincial or federal legislative jurisdiction and referred to Justice Beetz's reasons extensively. Thus, it appears that Justice Ledain understood anti-inflation as standing for the proposition that the national concern doctrine applies when two conditions are met. First, the matter does not fall within, that is, it is distinct from, the enumerated heads of jurisdiction and, second, it is single and indivisible. The issue in Crown Zellerbach was whether marine pollution could qualify as a matter of national concern. More specifically, the question was whether the control of pollution by the dumping of substances in marine waters, including provincial marine waters, is a single, indivisible matter, distinct from the control of pollution by the dumping of substances in other provincial waters. Justice Ledain proceeded in two steps, in line with anti-inflation. First, he determined that marine pollution was sufficiently distinct from the pollution of other provincial waters because of the distinction between salt and fresh water. Second, he determined that the distinction was sufficient to conclude that marine pollution was a single and indivisible matter. These cases demonstrate that the requirements of singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility serve the purpose of identifying matters that are truly residual in two ways. That is, the matter must be distinct from provincial matters and must be incapable of division between both orders of government such that it must be entrusted solely to Parliament. These requirements give effect to the general residual power of Parliament under POG and ensure that there is no jurisdictional gap in the division of powers. 
they apply to both new matters and to matters which, although originally falling under provincial jurisdiction, have come to extend beyond the powers of the province, and, due to indivisibility, must be entrusted exclusively to Parliament. Sub-sub-part 1. Importance is irrelevant. Given the residual nature of POG, the importance of a matter has nothing to do with whether it is a matter of national concern. In an Reinsurance Act, 1910-1913, SCC, the Supreme Court and the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council made plain that the importance of a subject did not mean that it had attained a national dimension so as to transfer matters from provincial to federal authority. The role of the general residual power is to maintain the exhaustiveness of the division of powers, not to centralize important matters that can be legislated upon by the provinces or by both orders of government. This would severely undermine the principle of federalism. For instance, provinces have jurisdiction to legislate in relation to education and the national concern doctrine cannot displace such authority simply because of the importance of the matter. Sub-sub-part 2. Distinctiveness. First, the impugned matter must be distinct from matters falling under the enumerated heads of section 92. This will be met when the matter is beyond provincial reach, including because of the limitation of provincial jurisdiction to matters in the province. This inquiry includes consideration of the provincial residuum. If the matter is of a merely local or private nature, it would fall under section 92 sub 16. For example, federal legislation regulating the insurance business could not be sustained under POG because it was not distinct from provincial matters. Provincial legislatures could have enacted legislation substantially identical under their authority to make laws in relation to civil rights and matters of local interest under sections 92 sub 13 and 92 sub 16. Similarly, the brewing and labeling of beer and light beer did not transcend the provincial authorities' powers so as to give rise to a matter of national concern. On the contrary, Justice Esty noted that there had been legislative action duly taken in this field by the provinces. By contrast, marine pollution was found to be sufficiently distinct from pollution in other provincial waters, which fall under provincial jurisdiction. Likewise, the subject of aeronautics was found to transcend provincial legislative boundaries. I would add that the matter must also be distinct from matters falling under federal jurisdiction, as POG is purely residual. Of course, since division of powers disputes typically pertain to the boundaries between provincial and federal jurisdiction, in practice, distinctiveness is mainly considered with respect to provincial powers. Sub-sub-part 3. Singleness and indivisibility. Second, as the Attorney General of Quebec correctly argued, even if the matter does not come within an enumerated head of power, it must be single and indivisible to fall under POG rather than an aggregate that can be broken down and distributed to enumerated heads of jurisdiction. In other words, the fact that provinces are unable to deal with a matter is insufficient to conclude that it falls under POG. The nature of the matter must be such that it cannot be shared between both orders of government and that it must be entrusted to Parliament, exclusively, to avoid a jurisdictional vacuum. This will be the case when the matter has a degree of unity and specificity that makes it indivisible or where the interprovincial and extra-provincial aspects of the matter are inextricably interrelated. For instance, diffuse matters such as inflation, labor relations and the environment are distinct from matters falling under Section 92. They are not of a merely local or private nature and cannot be fully regulated by the province. However, they cannot be assigned to Parliament exclusively since they are divisible aggregates of several subjects cutting across provincial and federal jurisdiction. They do not have a singleness such that they must be regulated exclusively by Parliament to avoid a jurisdictional gap. Such general categories should be viewed as outside the system and subdivided into appropriate parts so that necessary legislative action can be taken by some combination of both federal and provincial statutes. 
This is not a flaw of federalism, since we ought to reject the view that there must be a plenary jurisdiction in one order of government or the other to deal with any legislative problem. Rather, these matters are properly dealt with through federal-provincial agreements, what Professor Letterman calls the essence of cooperative federalism. Accordingly, resort to the general federal residual power is not necessary to preserve the exhaustiveness of the division of powers. This court has found that certain matters have the requisite singleness and indivisibility to fall under the general federal residual power rather than be distributed between federal and provincial heads of powers. For instance, the conservation of the national capital region was, by nature, a specific matter with a degree of unity that made it indivisible. In Crown-Zellerbach, the majority of this court found that marine pollution was a single and indivisible matter in part because the difficulty of ascertaining by visual observation the boundary between the territorial sea and the internal marine waters of a state creates an unacceptable degree of uncertainty for the application of regulatory and penal provisions. The interrelatedness of the interprovincial and extra-provincial aspects of the matter was such that marine pollution could not be shared between both orders of government if it were to be regulated. On this view, if it did not fall under the general federal residual power, neither parliament nor provincial legislatures could have effectively legislated upon marine pollution, which would be inconsistent with the exhaustive division of powers. Singleness and indivisibility are thus means to determine whether the matter truly lies outside the enumerated heads or if it is merely a new name applied to old legislative purposes that can be distributed among existing heads of jurisdiction. Subpart B. Provincial Inability. In Crown-Zellerbach, Justice Ledain held that in evaluating whether the matter has a singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility, it is relevant to consider what would be the effect on extra-provincial interests of a provincial failure to deal effectively with the control or regulation of the inter-provincial aspects of the matter. This factor is known as the provincial inability test. Once again, it is essential to look at the genesis of the provincial inability inquiry to understand what it sought to accomplish and its role in the national concern doctrine. The provincial inability inquiry has been designed to control the centralization of powers and to limit the extension of the national concern doctrine to matters that are beyond the power of the provinces to deal with and that must be legislated upon by Parliament exclusively. In Labat, this court held that matters would meet this test when interprovincial cooperation is realistically impossible because the failure of one province to cooperate would carry with it grave consequences for the residents of other provinces. In such cases, the matter is effectively beyond the power of the provinces to deal with it. This background sheds light on the purpose of the concept of provincial inability to help identify potential jurisdictional voids or gaps, which may indicate that a matter has a national dimension so as to fall under POG to ensure the division of powers is exhaustive. The underlying purpose of the provincial inability inquiry is essential to understanding its iteration in Crown-Zellerbach. Sub-sub-part 1 Extra-provincial effects are relevant to, but not determinative of, provincial inability. First, extra-provincial effects, on their own, are insufficient to satisfy the provincial inability test. Rather, the extra-provincial effects must be such that the matter, or part of the matter, is beyond the powers of the provinces to deal with on their own or in tandem. I acknowledge that this is not the only way to read Crown-Zellerbach. Read in isolation, Justice Ledain's reasons could suggest that provincial inability is met whenever there are considerable effects on extra-provincial interests of a provincial failure to deal effectively with the inter-provincial aspects of the matter. In my view, this understanding cannot be correct. Understood this way, provinces would be unable to legislate with respect to many matters that were expressly entrusted to them. For example, if a province did not deal effectively with the administration of justice in the province, this may have grave consequences for residents of other provinces. The absence of any criminal prosecutions in an entire province would surely have spillover effects for neighboring provinces. 
However, I would not say that this mere possibility makes all provinces unable to administer justice in the province. Clearly, some extra-provincial effects are compatible with provincial jurisdiction, considering that, under the federal structure, provinces can adversely affect extra-provincial interests if they are acting within their sphere of jurisdiction. If the pith and substance of provincial legislation comes within the classes of subjects assigned to the provinces, incidental or ancillary extra-provincial effects are irrelevant to its validity. Given the potential displacement of provincial authority, ports should have a strong empirical base for concluding that the extra-provincial effects are such that the matter is beyond the powers of the provinces to deal with on their own or in tandem. Evidence that provinces are not cooperating, even combined with the presence of extra-provincial effects, is also insufficient to make out provincial inability. Provinces are sovereign within their sphere of jurisdiction and can legitimately choose different policies than other provinces. The sovereign and democratic will of provincial legislatures entitles them to agree or disagree that uniformity of laws is a desirable goal, and to change their mind in the future. Moreover, since the possibility of one or more provinces not cooperating is always hypothetically present, such lax criteria would be an effective protection for provincial jurisdiction. It is worth repeating that striking a balance between diversity and uniformity is precisely why the Canadian Constitution has a federal structure. In certain fields, the Constitution Act 1867 places diversity and the right to provincial difference above uniformity. This is not a defect of our Constitution, it is a strength. Sub-sub-part 2. Provincial inability is relevant to, but not determinative of, singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility. Second, the residual role of the national concern doctrine explains why Justice Ledain and Crown Zellerbach indicated that the provincial inability test is only a factor to evaluate whether a subject matter has the required singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility. Many matters are beyond the power of the provinces to deal with but do not meet the requirements of singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility, and are therefore not matters of national concern. Obviously, matters that fall squarely within federal jurisdiction are one example, that is, currency and coinage, the postal service, etc. This is also the case when matters are mere divisible aggregates that span provincial and federal jurisdiction. For instance, there is no denying that the containment of inflation is beyond the power of the provinces to deal with, since it involves measures that fall squarely under federal jurisdiction, such as central banking measures relating to the rate of interest. This does not mean that the containment of inflation has the required singleness and indivisibility to qualify as a matter of national concern since it can be divided and distributed to both orders of government. Since there is no constitutional gap, there is no need for the national concern doctrine to be applied such that the entire matter comes under federal jurisdiction. Provincial inability is no more than Justice Ledain says it is in Crown Zellerbach, an indicium of singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility. Extra-provincial effects resulting in provincial inability may indicate that the matter is not of a local or private nature, that is, distinct from provincial matters, or is not separable from the local and private aspects of the matter, that is, indivisible or single. This will be the case where the extra- and intra-provincial aspects of a matter are interrelated and inseparable. This makes sense. In mind with the residual role of POG, federal authority over what was formerly within provincial competence is only justified where a matter has become distinct from what the provinces can do, and cannot be shared between orders of government because of its indivisibility. In such a case, reliance on POG is the only way to maintain the exhaustiveness of the division of powers. Otherwise, there would be a jurisdictional void. If the federal parliament did not have jurisdiction over such a matter, no one would. Subpart C. Scale of Impact 
when determining if a matter can pass muster as a subject matter falling under POG. The final step is to consider whether it has a scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction that is reconcilable with the fundamental distribution of legislative power under the Constitution. If the singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility inquiry has been carried out correctly such that reliance on POG is necessary to avoid a jurisdictional vacuum, then the scale of impact will necessarily be reconcilable with the division of powers. This stage of the test should therefore be understood as a check or litmus test, rather than as an independent requirement. The evaluation of the scale of impact on the federal balance illustrates the need for caution when determining whether a new permanent head of exclusive power should, in effect, be added to the federal list of powers. This prong of the test requires courts to determine whether recognizing the proposed new federal power would be compatible with the federal structure. It does not ask whether the importance of the proposed new federal power outweighs the infringement on provincial jurisdiction. Importance is irrelevant because it does not indicate whether there is a jurisdictional gap that must be filled with the general residual power. Important matters can and should be dealt with by the provinces. Further, assessing importance requires courts to assess the desirability of certain policies, something which is not their role. Rather, the notion of scale of impact on the fundamental distribution of powers is a manifestation of the principle of federalism. As this court held in Camo, this principle requires a court interpreting constitutional texts to consider how different interpretations impact the balance between federal and provincial interests. Professor Brulet explains that the idea of preserving a federal balance ought to be a principled exercise, animated by the values underlying federalism. Quote, the search for a federal balance aims at keeping an equilibrium between the values of unity and diversity, whose first legal expression is laid down in the distribution of powers between the levels of government. The value of unity will be essentially preserved if the autonomy of the central government is protected, as the value of diversity will be maintained if the federated units are free from interference from the central government in the exercise of their exclusive legislative powers. End of quote. If ubiquitous, all-pervasive matters, such as the containment and reduction of inflation, fell under POG, they would authorize federal action that would have a radical effect on the federal balance as they would render most provincial powers nugatory. Rather, the matter must be of a sufficiently narrow and specific nature to be consistent with the value of diversity and the autonomy of provincial governments to set their own priorities and come up with policies tailored to their unique needs. Moreover, the fact that some matters were not assigned exclusively to either Parliament or the provincial legislatures, and instead are shared between both orders of government, must be given effect. This must not be disturbed through constitutional interpretation. In the Queen and Hydro-Quebec, 1997, SCC, Chief Justice Lamaire and Justice Yako Bucci, dissenting, but not on this point, made this clear in relation to the environment as a subject matter. Quote, a decision by the framers of the Constitution not to give one level of government exclusive control over a subject matter should, in our opinion, act as a signal that the two levels of government are meant to operate in tandem with regard to that subject matter. One level should not be allowed to take over the field so as to completely dwarf the presence of the other. This does not mean that no regulation will be permissible, but wholesale regulatory authority of the type envisaged by the Act is, in our view, inconsistent with the shared nature of jurisdiction over the environment. As Justice Lefori noted in his dissenting reasons in Crown Zellerbach, environmental pollution alone that is, as a subject matter of legislative authority is itself all-pervasive. It is a byproduct of everything we do. In man's relationship with his environment, waste is unavoidable. End of quote. Although the modern conception of federalism is flexible and accommodates overlapping jurisdiction, courts must be careful not to let the double aspect doctrine undermine the scale of impact inquiry by suggesting that provinces retain ample means to regulate the matter. 
The double aspect doctrine recognizes that the same fact situation or matter may possess both federal and provincial aspects, which means that both orders of government can legislate from their respective perspective. For example, the prohibition of driving while intoxicated can be enacted by Parliament under its power over criminal law, while provinces can legislate regarding the suspension of driving licenses for highway safety reasons, likely under their power over property and civil rights. The role of the double aspect doctrine is simply to explain how similar rules in otherwise valid provincial and federal laws can apply simultaneously, when the contrast between the relative importance of the two features is not so sharp. Thus, while this doctrine allows for the concurrent application of both federal and provincial legislation, it does not create concurrent jurisdiction over a matter. As its name indicates, the doctrine only applies when a subject matter has multiple aspects, some that may be regulated under provincial jurisdiction, and some under federal jurisdiction. It is neither an exception nor even a qualification to the rule of exclusive legislative jurisdiction and does not allow Parliament and provincial legislatures to legislate on the same aspect of the matter. As Professors Brulet and Ryder write, an unbridled application of the doctrine would undermine the principle of exclusiveness that forms the foundation of the distribution of powers in Canada. Moreover, the double aspect doctrine must be applied carefully, since increasing overlap between provincial and federal competence can severely disrupt the federal balance. Under the Paramountcy Doctrine, where there is an inconsistency between validly enacted but overlapping provincial and federal legislation, the provincial legislation is inoperative to the extent of the inconsistency. The combined operation of the doctrines of double aspect and federal paramountcy can have profound implications for the federal structure and for provincial autonomy. I note that Quebec scholars have warned about the particular effects of an unrestrained application of the double aspect doctrine on the province's exclusive jurisdiction. To quote Professor Patton O., quote, It is because of Section 92, subsection 13, that Quebecers are governed by a distinct private law system adapted to the specificity of their culture. Any weakening of the rule of provincial exclusiveness signifies a possibility for the federal parliament, in which francophones are in the minority, to legislate, preeminently, in fields the framers had entrusted exclusively to the parliament of Quebecers. Quebecers cannot accept that fields of jurisdiction over which they have exclusive control can, under the guise of the aspect doctrine, pass into the sphere in which federal jurisdiction has priority of application. End of quote. As Professor Hogg explained, if in a nation paramount central power completely overlapped regional power, then that nation would not be federal. It is only where overlapping of power is incomplete, or the scope of central control is limited, that we have a federal system. When Professor Hogg wrote that the nation would not be federal, he did not mean that provinces would cease to exist. Rather, he meant that where provinces become subordinate units, the nation is no longer federal in its nature. In other words, supervisory federalism isn't federalism at all. The Chief Justice says that my description of national concern, referred to as two-step, is not reflective of the jurisprudence, noting Monroe and National Capital Commission, 1966, SCC, and Crown-Zellerbach. He concludes by saying, in those cases, this court did not proceed by way of a two-step search for a jurisdictional vacuum, rather, it applied the national concern test to identify matters of inherent national concern. In reply, first, I would say that aside from a few shining beacons of clarity and coherence, notably justice beats in anti-inflation, the jurisprudence on national concern has been unclear, even obscure. Second, I do not agree that my description of national concern is not consistent with the jurisprudence while that of the Chief Justice is so. Neither he nor I simply apply precedent. Rather, each of us in different ways makes sense of what was written before. The two-step approach I adopt reflects the methodology Justice Ledain set out and applied in Crown Zellerbach, as I have indicated throughout. Third, 
The difference is not how faithfully we each adhere to a tortuous case law, but rather how we each conceive of the purpose of the national concern doctrine. For me, it is to give effect to federal residual authority over matters not otherwise assigned under the enumerated heads of power and that cannot be divided between both orders of government. For the Chief Justice it is akin to a debenture, with Pod being a general federal authority that floats over that of the provinces, and crystallizes into exclusive federal jurisdiction when a matter of inherent national concern is recognized. These views are fundamentally different, but neither follows directly from the case law. The Chief Justice also takes issue with my account of the national concern test. I agree that our understandings of POG are fundamentally different. Mine is that POG confers residual authority, by which I mean authority to legislate in relation to only those matters which would otherwise fall into a jurisdictional vacuum. As such, it can only be the basis of jurisdiction for matters that do not come within heads of power listed in sections 91 and 92, and cannot be divided between them. Such residual authority is necessary to ensure that the division of powers is exhaustive. To put it in the simplest terms, the matters falling under the competence conferred on Parliament by Section 91 and that conferred on the legislatures of the provinces by Section 92, or any combination of the two, by definition, cannot come within a residual authority. Therein lies the conceptual difference that the Chief Justice highlights. In his framework, POG is a primary source of authority conferred on Parliament in relation to matters of inherent national concern. Moreover, it is a source of authority that can be used to deal with federal aspects of matters under enumerated powers within the exclusive jurisdiction of provincial legislatures. Thus, he states, where Canada is empowered to impose a minimum national standard, a double aspect situation arises, federal and provincial laws apply concurrently, but the federal law is paramount. By means of minimum national standards, a federal aspect is generated, and this federal aspect can be used as a basis to supervise provinces in the exercise of their authority. This is not residual authority. It is the antithesis of residual authority, as it would operate to encroach on jurisdiction conferred on the provinces. Most respectfully, I disagree. Subpart D. Conclusion. The national concern doctrine must be applied with caution in light of its residual role and its potential to upset the division of powers. If the doctrine is not strictly applied so as to limit it to ensuring that the division of powers is exhaustive, the federal nature of the Constitution would disappear not gradually, but rapidly. Part 4. The Attorney General of Canada's expansive approach lacks caution. Repeated warnings about the misuse of the national concern power, notably by Justice Beats in anti-inflation, were all but ignored by the Attorney General of Canada in his submissions before this court. The Attorney General of Canada did not seek to rely on the federal enumerated powers, notably taxation or trade and commerce, as the basis for the constitutionality of the Act. He did not set forth national concern as an alternative basis, nor did he rely on the emergency branch, which confers Parliament temporary, rather than permanent, authority. In a throwaway submission, the Attorney General of Canada made passing reference to these potential grounds and referred the court to the submissions of certain interveners. This was audacious as national concern has been recognized repeatedly as being a threat to the distribution of powers that is at the heart of the Confederation bargain. Further, the Attorney General of Canada's proposed national concern test would considerably extend the doctrine, despite this court's call for caution when considering a doctrine that inevitably raises profound issues respecting the federal structure of our Constitution. I would reject this doctrinal expansion of national concern. I do so for two reasons. First, it departs in a marked and unjustified way from the jurisprudence of this court. And, second, if adopted, it will provide a broad and open pathway for further incursions into what has been exclusive provincial jurisdiction. Subpart A. Becoming a matter of national concern. 
The Attorney General of Canada argues in his factum that the pith and substance of the act of establishing minimum national standards integral to reducing nationwide greenhouse gas emissions has attained national dimensions because of its importance and the existential threat that climate change poses. This reasoning misstates what it means to attain national dimensions. A matter has attained national dimensions when it has the requisite singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility such that it cannot fit under any enumerated head or be divided among multiple enumerated heads, and a scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction that is reconcilable with the division of powers, as explained above. How important a matter is does not determine which order of government has jurisdiction. While the seriousness or the immediacy of the threat that climate change poses may be relevant to an argument under the emergency branch, it has no place in the national concern analysis, which is separate and distinct from the national emergency doctrine. Similarly, the Attorney General of Canada also says that the presence of international agreements indicates that the matter is of national concern. This argument is not only inconsistent with the residual nature of POG, it also undermines almost nine decades of jurisprudence beginning with the Labour Convention's case, which held that the federal government does not gain legislative competence by virtue of entering into international agreements. Rather, the federal government and the provinces must cooperate to implement international agreements that relate to matters within provincial jurisdiction. What is urged on us by the Attorney General of Canada is a means, indirect, but no less significant thereby, for the Federal Cabinet to expand the competence of Parliament by the exercise of its authority in respect of foreign relations. Subpart B. Singleness, Distinctiveness and Indivisibility The treatment of singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility by the Attorney General of Canada conflates key elements of the test. Skipping over, I would go so far as to say denying the existence of what should be important limits on federal jurisdiction. Interpreting such limits out of existence will have profound implications for the future on issues having nothing to do with climate change. On distinctiveness, the Attorney General of Canada argues in his factum that the subject matter and the act target a distinct type of pollutant with indisputable persistence, atmospheric diffusion, harmful effects and interprovincial aspects. While the distinctiveness of greenhouse gases from other types of gases may be relevant to the distinctiveness inquiry, it is only relevant insofar as the regulation of greenhouse gases is outside of or distinct from provincial competence, which the Attorney General of Canada fails to adequately explain. The distinctiveness requirement is inherently incompatible with the backstop nature of the Act, which contemplates that some or all provinces could implement greenhouse gas pricing schemes that accord with standards set, from time to time, by the Federal Cabinet, thereby avoiding the triggering of federal intervention. Chief Justice Lemaire and Justice Yacobucci make a similar point in their dissenting reasons in Hydro-Quebec. In that case, equivalency provisions which allowed the governor and council to exempt a province from the scheme if the province had equivalent regulations in force led them to reject the argument that the provinces were unable to regulate toxic substances. The Attorney General of Canada glosses over the problems with its distinctiveness argument through a proposed modernized national concern test that draws on the trade and commerce power jurisprudence and focuses on its version of provincial inability. This new test urged on us by the Attorney General of Canada does away with many of the requirements of singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility, and simply asks is the matter distinctly national? The Attorney General of Canada says this should be assessed using the provincial inability test. He says it is more than an indicium of distinctiveness, it is the test for distinctiveness. In effect, the Attorney General of Canada's proposition collapses singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility into provincial inability, despite Justice Ledain's caution that provincial inability should be only one indicium in determining whether a matter meets the singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility requirements. This approach fails to give effect to the residual nature of the pod power. 
It ignores Justice Beetz's caution that an aggregate of provincial and federal matters is not sufficiently distinctive and too pervasive to justify the creation of what amounts to a new head of power under national concern. This is exacerbated by the Attorney General of Canada's reliance on the trade and commerce power jurisprudence to understand the provincial inability test. There is no reason why the national concern test should be informed by tests for enumerated heads of power, because the national concern test is directed towards matters that would not pass those tests. If a matter comes with trade and commerce or another enumerated power, then it cannot also be a matter of national concern if POG is a residual power. The result is that something like the containment and reduction of inflation, which Justice Beats, with majority support on this point, held did not pass muster in anti-inflation, may pass the Attorney General of Canada's proposed modernized test. This is so because, even though such a matter could be divided between provincial and federal enumerated heads of power rendering it divisible, the provinces, on their own or in tandem, would be unable to fully deal with it, and the failure of one province to act would endanger the interests of other provinces. This example illustrates how the Attorney General of Canada's proposal increases, I would go so far as to say transforms, the scope of the National Concern Branch under POG. The device of minimum national standards makes wider still the pathway for enhancement of federal jurisdiction. The Attorney General of Canada argues that the provincial inability test is met, in part, because no single province or territory can constitutionally legislate minimum national standards, but by means of minimum national standards could be applied to any matter, the same way by means of the federal government could be applied to any matter. If it could be applied to any matter, then it adds nothing meaningful to the description of a matter and has no place. Including minimum national standards in the matter of national concern short-circuits the analysis and opens the door to federal minimum standards with respect to other areas of provincial jurisdiction, artificially expanding federal capacity to legislate in what have been until now matters coming within provincial jurisdiction. This device undermines federalism by replacing provincial autonomy in the exercise of its jurisdiction with the exercise of such jurisdiction made permanently subject to federal supervision. Further, the Attorney General of Canada fails to identify extra-provincial effects that would be relevant to provincial inability. The Attorney General of Canada points to carbon leakage, interprovincial competition resulting from businesses relocating from jurisdictions with more strict climate policies to jurisdictions with less strict climate policies, but this is not the kind of extra-provincial effects that make the provinces unable to deal with the matter, on their own or in tandem. An imaginative lawyer can almost always find some effects of provincial measures outside the province. This is not enough to put all or part of a matter beyond the power of the provinces to deal with. If it were, the provinces would be unable to legislate in many areas of provincial jurisdiction. The Attorney General of Canada departs from this court's jurisprudence in treating provincial inability and extra-provincial effects as more than an indicator, and losing sight of what it is supposed to be indicating, singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility, which give effect to the residual nature of POG. Extra-provincial effects leading to provincial inability to deal with all or part of a matter can constitute one step towards singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility. In treating provincial inability as determinative, the Attorney General of Canada reframes the national concern test so as to expand the scope of POD beyond its proper residual nature. In effect, the Attorney General of Canada's modernized test does away with singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility by understanding these concepts in terms of his version of provincial inability. It then renders provincial inability meaningless by defining the matter in terms minimum national standards, something no province can do. By this logical sleight of hand, provincial inability exists whenever Parliament provides for minimum national standards. Subpart C. Scale of Impact. 
the Attorney General of Canada suggests that the scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction of the Act is reconcilable with the distribution of powers, in part because of the backstop mechanism. He argues in his factum that the Act respects provincial jurisdiction because it provides provinces with the flexibility to implement their own greenhouse gas pricing systems and fills in gaps where the provincial pricing systems do not meet the minimum national standards. This is presented as cooperative federalism. These conclusions are based on a highly centralized understanding of federalism. The Act leaves room for provincial jurisdiction only insofar as the decision of the province conforms to the will of Parliament and the federal cabinet. Indeed, this is the whole point. It would not be a minimum national standard if it were possible to drop below that standard or asked to be measured by a different yardstick. Given the number of activities and industries that produce greenhouse gas emissions, the Act's scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction would be so pervasive that it knows no bounds. While provincial authority would remain nominally intact, in reality it would become subject to oversight by the federal cabinet through the exercise of its ability to invoke minimum national standards that would override provincial measures. But provinces are not simple agents for implementing national policies but rather veritable laboratories for the development of solutions adapted to local realities. The Act is not an exercise in cooperative federalism. Rather, it is the means to enforce supervisory federalism. As the Attorney General of Quebec points out, even provincial schemes that, at a given time, meet the federal benchmark would never be secure from federal displacement. As a result, the continued application and consistent operation of provincial schemes would be less predictable. This is especially the case considering that minimum national standards could be elevated to a level that completely subsumes provincial schemes. The Act effectively undermines the predictability, stability, and integrity of provincial regulatory schemes. Exercise of provincial authority would be permanently contingent on the federal cabinet's discretion. The reasoning of the Attorney General of Canada turns provincial autonomy on its head. It also suggests that Parliament could enact minimum national standards for a panoply of areas within provincial jurisdiction and thereby create a federal aspect of multiple provincial matters. This has implications far beyond this legislation. These implications permanently alter the Confederation bargain. The double aspect doctrine does not cure this problem. The double aspect doctrine allows the same fact situation to be regulated from different perspectives, one of which may relate to a provincial power and the other to a federal power. The problem here is that the federal matter has been defined in terms of the extent to which it can limit the province's discretion to legislate, the backstop mechanism. This is not two aspects of the same fact situation. It is one aspect, and it gives the federal government the upper hand and the final say, but that is what minimum national standards are intended to do. In conclusion, I would reject the Attorney General of Canada's proposed expansion of the National Concern Doctrine and, for the reasons of my colleague Justice Brown, conclude that Parliament did not have jurisdiction to enact the Act under its general residual power. However, given that the majority has concluded that Parliament has the power to enact the Act, I want to emphasize that this conclusion does not extend to the regulations made under the Act. Part 5. The constitutionality of regulations made under the Act are a matter for another day. The Act confers exceptionally broad authority on the Governor and Council to create policy in the regulations, particularly under Part 2. Although the majority has decided to uphold the Act, the regulations are not before this Court, and may well be challenged in future cases. I take this opportunity to clarify the appropriate methodology for reviewing regulations facially enacted pursuant to a constitutional statute for compliance with the division of powers, and how this methodology may apply to regulations made under the Act. In short, the federal power when applied in the regulations must be limited to the matter of national concern in which the Act is grounded, establishing minimum national standards of price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. 
To establish minimum national standards, any differences in treatment between industries or provinces in the regulations must be justified with respect to price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Regulations that have the effect of favoring or imposing unequal burdens on certain provinces and industries in a manner that cannot be so justified would be ultra-vires the division of powers. Subpart A. Regulations purportedly enacted under a constitutional act can be unconstitutional. It is possible for a statute to be inter-vires, and yet for regulations facially enacted under that statute to be ultra-vires on division of powers grounds. One way to see this is that such regulations are not properly inter-vires the act, insofar as they are not consistent with the purpose for which the act was upheld, even if facially they are within the act's wording. In reference Reassisted Human Reproduction Act, Chief Justice McLaughlin assessed whether an act was valid under the federal criminal law power, and explained that any regulations passed under the enabling statute will be valid only insofar as they further valid criminal law goals, and they will be subject to challenge to the extent that they do not. As long as the regulations made under an act reflect and further the purposes for which the act was held to be constitutional, such regulatory schemes remain securely anchored in the act and intervires. Certain regulation-making powers are more likely to give rise to regulations that may overstep the bounds of the division of powers than others. For example, the power to make regulations that define the mere details of a valid scheme are unlikely to affect the division of powers. Broader regulatory powers are cause for greater concern. In such cases, the regulatory authority, which must then itself consider the limits of the power so granted, is more likely to make regulations that will be found to be unconstitutional, whereas the Enabling Act, owing to the generality of the language used and to the presumption of validity of laws, will avoid such a finding. In this case, the Act delegates substantial authority to the Governor and Council to make regulations. The Act, and especially Part 2, could be described as framework or skeletal legislation, in the sense that much of its content is given effect by means of the regulations. In the context of framework legislation, the risk of regulations using their powers in a manner that is beyond their constitutional competence is particularly high. While the validity of the regulations the Governor and Council has made, or will make in the future, is a matter for another day, I offer some guidance on the proper methodology for reviewing the constitutionality of such regulations. The Chief Justice writes, My colleague Justice Rowe has taken this opportunity to propose a methodology for assessing the constitutionality of regulations made under the GGPPA. His speculative concern that such regulations could be used to further industrial favoritism is neither necessary nor desirable. This legislation is an instrument not only of environmental policy, but also industrial policy. By design, regulations under Part 2 will have impacts that vary by enterprise, sector and region. These regulations will affect the viability, for example, of natural resource industries that need to generate power at remote locations or heavy industries that require intense heat, like making cement or smelting ore. By contrast, they will have little effect on industries that are either not power-intensive, like finance, or where production is electrified, like manufacturing. While the primary purpose of the legislation is environmental protection, Part 2 is premised on tailoring the impact of emissions reduction by reference inter alia, to economic considerations. Issues as to whether regulations veer too deeply into industrial policy, thus calling into question the regulation's constitutionality, will inevitably arise. Subpart B. Methodology for evaluating the constitutionality of regulations. An administrative decision to enact regulations is, presumptively, reviewed solely for reasonableness, unless there is a reason to rebut that presumption. 
in Canada, Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, and Vavilov, 2019, SCC, this court made clear that there is no separate jurisdictional questions category of correctness review that would rebut the presumption, even for delegated legislation. Vavilov also adopted the view that where the legislature has established a clear line, the administrative decision-maker cannot go beyond it, and where the legislature has established an ambiguous line, the decision-maker can go no further than the ambiguity will fairly allow. One way that the presumption of reasonableness can be rebutted, however, is when the constitutionality of a provision is an issue, including a challenge based on the division of powers. As Vavilov explained, quote, A legislature cannot alter the scope of its own constitutional powers through statute nor can it alter the constitutional limits of executive power by delegating authority to an administrative body. In other words, although a legislature may choose what powers it delegates to an administrative body, it cannot delegate powers that it does not constitutionally have. The constitutional authority to act must have determinate, defined and consistent limits, which necessitates the application of the correctness standard. End of quote. Where the reason for which regulations are said to be ultra-vires their enabling statute is because they are ultra-vires the division of powers, this raises a constitutional question. As the standard of review may depend on the nature of the challenge and the relief sought, I will say no more about it here. As for methodology, the review of regulation for compliance with the division of powers follows the same structure as the review of legislation for compliance with the division of powers. In both cases, one must characterize the measure and then classify it. This court explained the process for analyzing the constitutionality of subordinate legislation, specifically a municipal bylaw, in Rogers Communications Incorporated and Chat Ogee, City, 2016, SCC. Quote, in analyzing the pith and substance of the notice of a reserve, the court must consider both its purpose and its effects. The purpose of a municipal measure, like that of a law, is determined by examining both intrinsic evidence, such as the preamble or the general purposes stated in the resolution authorizing the measure, and extrinsic evidence, such as that of the circumstances in which the measure was adopted. As for the effects of a municipal measure, they are determined by considering both the legal ramifications of the words used and the practical consequences of the application of the measure. End of quote. Analyzing the pith and substance of the municipal measure at issue above is done in the same way as it is for the pith and substance of a statute. Regulations are no different. The underlying logic is the same. Parliament cannot via statute exercise power it does not have, and so it cannot delegate power that it does not have. Scrutiny for compliance with the division of powers can be no less, simply because Parliament has chosen to give effect to its authority through a delegate who is empowered to make regulations. A division of powers analysis begins with pith and substance, and pith and substance begins with purpose and effect. In considering purpose, courts can and should consider both intrinsic and extrinsic evidence. However, certain empowering provisions are more likely than others to generate extrinsic evidence. Empowering provisions of cities, where bylaws are passed after public debate, almost always generate extrinsic evidence. Rogers Communications is an example. Similarly, empowering provisions that place a duty to give reasons on an administrative decision-maker can also be adequately reviewed for constitutionality. Regulations directed to an individual or specific site, as opposed to regulations of general application, may attract a duty of procedural fairness. Where, however, there is no public debate and no duty to give reasons, there is no guarantee that extrinsic evidence will be created. Without such extrinsic evidence, a court's ability to effectively adjudicate the boundaries of federal and provincial powers may be made more difficult. This will generally arise with regulation-making powers. This problem is particularly pernicious where the governor in council is empowered to make regulations. As cabinet deliberates in secret, submissions to it are protected from disclosure and it gives no reasons for its decisions. 
it is very nearly a total black box. Further, it has been said that it is not the function of a court to investigate the motives of cabinet. It is clear that courts have the power to review the virus of subordinate legislation, even where it is promulgated by the governor in council, where the basis for the review is that the subordinate legislation is ultra-vires on division of powers grounds. As noted, Parliament cannot delegate power that it does not have. This is fundamental, while there may be evidentiary hurdles to identify the purpose of the regulations, where a review of the validity of a regulation turns on whether or not it is ultra-vires the division of powers, courts remain tasked with ascertaining the pith and substance. Courts may consider extrinsic evidence in assessing the vires of an order in council and have found orders in council to be invalid on the basis of extrinsic evidence of purpose. Where available, documents such as a regulatory impact analysis statement may provide extrinsic evidence of the purpose of a regulation. Where there is no extrinsic evidence of purpose, courts must infer the purpose as best they can from the language of the regulation itself and ascertain the pith and substance using that in conjunction with the effects of the regulation. The legal and practical effects of the regulations will thus likely be highly relevant to determine their pith and substance and their validity in light of federal jurisdiction over establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Subpart C. Empowering Provisions Under the Act. I discuss a few key regulation empowering provisions in the Act, and how such regulations may interact with the methodology set out above. The overall scheme of the Act has been explained by my colleague Justice Brown, and I need not repeat it here. As regulations made under the Act are not before us, I make only general observations. Sub sub part 1. Part 1. In Part 1 of the Act, Sections 166 to 168 provide the regulation granting powers. Section 166 sub 1 sub a, in combination with other sections, empowers the governor and council to make regulations prescribing who pays the fuel charge, and under what conditions, who is exempt from the fuel charge, and under what conditions, and the amount of the fuel charge in certain conditions. Section 166 sub 1 sub e gives the governor and council the power to make regulations distinguishing among any class of persons, provinces, areas, facilities, property, activities, fuels, substances, materials or things. These provisions have clear potential for use that is within federal competence over establishing minimum national standards of price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The governor and council could distinguish between provinces, industries, fuels, etc. if the distinction is justified in light of the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, for example, by taking into account the risk of international carbon leakage and the relative effectiveness of the pricing standard on greenhouse gas emissions. Regulations that differentiate between industries on such bases may fall within the matter of national concern in which the Act is grounded. However, the potential for playing favorites for reasons that have nothing to do with establishing minimum national standards of price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is obvious. Moreover, even if regulations are enacted without such favoritism, they could have the effect of unduly disadvantaging certain provinces or industries in a way that is incompatible with establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Such regulations would be unconstitutional, even though the provisions that facially empower them are valid. Sections 166 sub 2 and 166 sub 3 give the governor and council the power to amend the list of provinces and areas to which part 1 of the act applies taking into account the stringency of provincial pricing mechanisms for greenhouse gas emissions as the primary factor. Although the act does not define stringency, the governor and council's decision to list or not list a province is nonetheless constrained by the limits of establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Similar provisions exist in Part 2 as well.
Section 166 sub 4 gives the governor and council the power to change the fuel charge for an individual fuel on a per region basis. Section 168 allows the governor and council to make regulations in relation to the fuel charge system. Section 168 sub 3 provides the power to modify this part through regulations, and Section 168 sub 4 allows regulations made under this part 1 in respect of the fuel charge system to prevail over this part in case of conflict. This is the so-called Henry VIII Clause. There is similar potential for abuse or unconstitutional effects in the exercise of these empowering provisions as there is in those described above. Sub-sub-part 2. Part 2. Part 2 delegates even more of the details to the regulations, and contains even more potential for overstepping the bounds of the division of powers. Part 2 of the Act creates a per-facility emissions limit. This creates the potential for improper differential treatment of facilities through the regulations. Key to the operation of Part 2 is Section 192. This section gives the Governor and Council 17 explicit regulation-making powers, including the power to make regulations respecting covered facilities and when they cease to be covered facilities and respecting the circumstances under which greenhouse gases are deemed to have been emitted by a facility. Section 192 sub G is particularly important, as it allows the Governor and Council to make regulations respecting greenhouse gas emissions limits. Section 192 sub G gives the Governor and Council power to create a scheme that defines the emissions limits. These are not otherwise defined in the statute. The only stated restriction on the Governor and Council here is that the regulations must be for the purposes of this division. Although the division does not have a stated purpose, it is titled Pricing Mechanism for Greenhouse Gas Emissions. This power to set per facility emissions limits is at the heart of Part 2 of the Act, and it could support a wide variety of regulations. Given, however, that the Act is a per-facility scheme, the statute contemplates that the Governor and Council will create regulations that do not treat all covered facilities identically. This gives rise to the possibility of differences in treatment between industries that have nothing to do with the effectiveness of greenhouse gas emissions pricing in those industries. This would be inconsistent with establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Regulations that impose different treatment of facilities and industries must be justified in light of federal jurisdiction over this matter, or they will exceed the powers Parliament could validly delegate to the Governor and Council. The regulations, no less than the legislation under which they are enacted, must constitute an exercise of authority that is within federal competence. If they are not, they will be ultra-vires the division of powers and, thereby, void in law. Part 6. Conclusion. A patient and careful examination of the doctrine reveals that POG should be, and was always intended to be, a residual and circumscribed power of last resort that preserves the exhaustiveness of the division of powers. It is only available where no enumerated head of power, or combination of enumerated heads of power, is available. The approach of the Attorney General of Canada reflects a troubling misinterpretation of and departure from Crown Zellerbach and the doctrine that preceded it. For these reasons, and those of Justice Brown which I adopt, the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act is ultra-vires in whole and the reference questions are answered in the affirmative. Accordingly, I would allow the appeals of the Attorney General of Saskatchewan and the Attorney General of Ontario and I would dismiss the appeal of the Attorney General of British Columbia. Appeals of the Attorney General of Saskatchewan and of the Attorney General of Ontario dismissed and appeal of the Attorney General of British Columbia allowed. Justice Cote dissenting in part and Justice Brown and Roe dissenting, 